the day that uh, Kobe Bryant passed away, something snapped in me. I realized how short life can be. And I never met him. I didn't even know him much, but the things that people were writing about him, there was just something that made me snap out. And I, I realized that I hadn't seen my family for over three years. Why had I not seen them? I hadn't seen them because I was making excuses that I was working very hard to make the Olympic team, but I don't think I had my mind and heart in it. In that moment, I realized that what I was doing was I was just wasting time and making excuses and not really taking advantage of the opportunity that I had. And in that moment, I decided that I was going to fully commit to making the team. So that was seriously the day that I, I recommitted myself to making the team and believing that I was going to make it. That's Alephine Tuliamuk. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Alephine Tuliamuk. Alephine recently won the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in Atlanta to qualify for her first Olympic team. She ran away from Molly Seidel in the last two miles of the race to break the tape in 227-23 and fulfill her American dream. The 30-year-old is a native of Kenya and became a U.S. citizen in 2016. She lives in Flagstaff, Arizona and trains with Hoka Northern Arizona Elite under coach Ben Rosario. Alephine is a graduate of Wichita State University, where she was a 14-time All-American and earned a degree in public health. She's now a 10-time national champion and a two-time guest on this podcast, initially appearing back on episode 15, which you should go listen to if you missed it the first time around. This conversation was mostly focused on the Olympic trials, how the battle actually played out versus how Alephine thought it would go, and what life has been like for her in the days since winning the race. We talked about Alephine's Olympic dream and developing a renewed sense of appreciation for the opportunities that she's been presented with in life. Alephine told me about the impact that Kobe Bryant's death had on her mindset heading into the Olympic trials, why she was uncharacteristically nervous in the days before the race, what the final stretch of the race was like for her when she realized that she was going to make the team, how she will use her elevated platform to inspire more people moving forward, and a lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think there's a lot to learn from Alephine's story. So without further ado, let's dive right into it with 2020 U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon Champion, Alephine Tuliamuk. All right, Alephine Tuliamuk, you are in rare company as a returning guest on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Last time we chatted was two years ago, but now you are an Olympian. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Is it really been that long? Almost. It was May 2018 that we had that conversation. I think you had just won the US 25K title, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. I didn't realize it's been that long. Yeah, it is. It has been a while. It feels like it was just a couple months ago to me, but um, I checked and it has indeed been two years. But let's look back at this weekend. As of this conversation, the race was only six days ago. 
how has the past week been for you? Has it been a whirlwind? Are you still on cloud nine? I'd love to get into your headspace a little bit. <laughs> it's been a whirlwind for sure, especially the last, you know, like, I, I mean, the first two days of uh, post race, it was just crazy. You know, like you finish this race, you accomplish this goal that you've been wanting to accomplish for a very long time. And then you think, you know, how you're going to feel or how you're going to react, but then it happens and, Things just, you know, like it's been different. There's been a lot of, um, I mean, there were high emotions when I finished the race and it was like, did this really happen or is this a dream and stuff? And then, um, you know, talking to people and having so many people, you know, message you like, seriously, I haven't even gone through my uh, Instagram um, messages. Like I went through uh, most of the messages of people that I had already been friends with. And as soon as I went through most of that, and that was like probably three days after, I looked at the, the new people and there was 99 plus messages <laughs> and I was like, I give up, you know, because it took me a long time. Um, so it's been a, it's been interesting. And then I had so many messages, you know, like on all my social uh, media accounts and um, yeah, it's been fun. But like, I think it's finally beginning to feel like normal Um you know, like other than the the uh, the media obligations that I have, I'm definitely back to my normal life and stuff. And so it's been good. It's been fun. It was really cool on Sunday when I walked past the Olympic rings in Atlanta. You were standing in front of them just taking photos with passerbys on the sidewalk who wanted to be in a picture with you uh, because they recognized you from winning the race the day before. You had the big medal around your neck. What was that like for you just walking around Atlanta the day after the race and having people recognize you as the Olympic trials champion? It was really cool. And actually, that was kind of intentional because, um, I mean, we uh, we posted on social media that we were going to do a meet and greet uh, by the Olympic ring. And, you know, some people didn't know uh, who I was or that I had won the race. And uh, they had the um, uh, Publix Atlanta marathon, half marathon and a 5K going on. And so some of the participants of that race. Um, we actually were at the start line of the race and uh, we uh, we we said hi to, you know, participants before they started off their race. And then when we went to the Olympic um, rings and, and people were coming by to say hi and take pictures, I think it was really cool. Like I got to meet some of the people that, um, that I had been following me on social media for a long time. And some of them I had had communication with and uh, it was really cool. It was fun. Um, and then to come home and have all those people tag you on pictures, I thought it was pretty cool. What was it like when you got back to Flagstaff this past week? I saw that you did a little event along with Abdi Abdurrahman with the Tuesday night group that does a workout at, at NAU. How was it just assimilating back into your hometown community, the people who see you training every day and have been supporting this journey of yours for the past couple of years? It was definitely incredibly fun. Um, you know, I saw a, a video of people who are watching the race at the Lambier Brewery and they were just going crazy, you know, like excited and cheering. And it was really nice to be able to see some of those people. And actually, a lot of them had watched the race. And I did end up, I went up to, I had a school visit. Uh, I visited uh, Ben Rosario's daughter's uh, third grade class and then uh, another class too. And it was really fun because some of those kids, had watched my race. And in fact, um, their daughter's class wrote uh, letters to us before the race. And this one girl who uh, wrote my letter, she was like, you're so brave to be, you know, going to the Olympic trials. I didn't think I could run or I don't think I could do it. I would be very scared. 
and I had a chance to meet her. And it's really funny because she um she told me that now, you know, like I was her big fan and then that we could now exchange names. Like she could take my name and I take her name. And it was really cool. It was fun. And then um, I did that like uh, in the afternoon and then I went to meet with the community in the evening, you know, like the, the adults that are doing TRF. And then I also was able to meet with the kids and they like, you know, like they felt how heavy the metal is. And it was fun. It was exciting, you know. Like you've been a part of this community for so long, you don't really know how many people support you until you do something like that. And then you just see all the support that you have. And it was really fun. And um, when we uh, when we had the event in Flagstaff where they were sending us off, I thought it was pretty fun and, you know, awesome. Everybody came by to uh, send us off to Atlanta and wish us luck. And one of the promises that I made was I was going to uh, do my best to represent Flagstaff very well. And having done that and, you know, coming back and thanking those people for everything that they've done, it was really cool. What's the message that you gave those kids that you spoke to on Tuesday afternoon? You know, I, I just told them that uh, their dreams were valid, you know, that if you dreamt of a big goal, because some of them were like, I don't think I could do this. I said, no, anything and everything is possible if you put your mind into it. If you believe in yourself, believe in the people that are telling you that you can do this you can do anything. So my message to them was believe in yourself and go for it. Going to your Olympic dream, when did it start for you? Back in 2009, I believe, uh, I think, uh, so I watched the 2008 Olympic, uh, Olympics and I was in high school and I just thought it was really fun and cool. And um, having represented Kenya uh, in 2005 World Cross Country and experiencing life of being um part of a team. I, I really enjoyed it. And of course, the Olympics is a big thing. And um, in 2008, I watched the opening ceremony. I watched, you know, like some of the races and it was really fun and I wanted to be a part of it. So in 2009, uh, when I got here, fall of 2009, I decided that I wanted to be in the Olympics, even though I wasn't running very well back then. And did you want to be in the Olympics for Kenya at that time? Or did you know that you were going to eventually start the process of being a, an American citizen someday? Honestly, at the time, I just wanted to be in the Olympics. I, I had I didn't even know that I could become an American. I think when I came to America the first time, you know, like all I knew was my home country, Kenya. And so I didn't really know very much. And I didn't even know that people could come here and they could become citizens. And so those are things that I just learned uh, once I got here, you know, and um, once I got assimilated to the culture and I really like started appreciating everything that I was getting and I was going through. Because like when I think about like the beginning of my career, especially like in college, I feel like I was very entitled. I feel like I didn't really appreciate the things that people were doing for me. But like as time went by, I really started appreciating. I started feeling like it was a privilege, you know, that I had the opportunity to do all these things. And I also, you know, noticed how um, it gave me an opportunity to help my family. It gave me an opportunity to inspire people, you know, through running like and being a part of the community. And that was around the time where I, I realized that, you know, like if the opportunity comes, you know, I would love to represent this, you know, beautiful nation that had done so much for me. But yeah, the first time that I thought about uh, going to the Olympics, I didn't really think about running for the U.S. What were some of those things that happened that helped you to better appreciate the situation that you were in and the opportunities that had been given to you? 
I think, you know, like, number one thing that happened was, you know, I was able to come here, you know, like I'm, I'm from a, a big family and I was able to come here and I went to college and my education was paid for and I had a chance to choose whatever degree I could do without having to necessarily pay for it. And also, while I was going to school, I was also developing my running, you know, and that's something that I would not have gotten it anywhere else. Like if I had gone to college in Kenya, I probably would have done one or the other, you know. But being here and being on scholarship, I was able to do both of them. And then, like, I could pursue an education uh, in the field that I wanted to, which is something that is actually different from uh, being in Kenya. Like in Kenya, it's basically like the government chooses what degree you study when you go to college. It depend, It's dependent on your grades. Like when the results come out, because there's like a standardized test for uh, high schoolers, um, like a seniors in high school, and depending on what grade you, you have, you apply to go to college and you apply for the courses. But ultimately, it's the government choosing what courses you get to qualify to go to. Over here, it's so different. Like if I want to go to nursing school, I just focus on the classes that, uh, you know, like can take me to nursing school. And I have so many chances to, um, you know, say if I did a class and I failed, I have another chance to redo that class. And so these opportunities that I wouldn't have gotten it in Kenya, now I am here and I have a chance to do that. And really, I think that was one of the things that made me really, really appreciate, you know, being here. And I just wanted to, you know, like, like give back. And I really am glad that I ha- I'm in a position now that I can actually do that. I have a platform now through running that I can inspire kids here in the U.S. and kids back in Africa. And that makes me very happy. I love hearing that. And there are a number of layers to the answer that you just gave. But I think one of them is just the appreciation that you have for the opportunities that you've been given. And as someone who was born in this country and grew up here, I feel like there are a lot of Americans who don't appreciate how good we really have it. So I loved learning more about your story two years ago when we first spoke. But I love seeing now that you have this platform, largely due to the fact that you won the Olympic trials, that more people can hear your story and also look back at their lives and realize just how much opportunity we we have here and to better appreciate it. And I think, you know, I think that's like one of the biggest takeaways of what you achieved last weekend. Yeah. And Mario, I mean, I don't really blame uh, people who don't know how good they have it, because here's the thing. When I was in Kenya and when I was growing up, I hadn't gone anywhere, right? And I didn't really know. There was I didn't know the difference. Like, it's only until you leave one place and you go somewhere else and experience something different, right. you don't appreciate what you have until you don't have it. Or the other way around, like, you don't appreciate what you have or what you don't have until you experience something else that you can compare to. And for me, like, being here... I, I now know that there's more opportunities here and that it's given me a lot of, you know, like, um, I guess um, I can help more people. I can inspire more people because I am here and because I have the opportunity. But the only reason I noticed that is because I I'm, I came from Kenya where I know that there weren't that many opportunities. And so this gives me a chance to appreciate this more. And so if there are people who are here and they don't appreciate the opportunities they have, it's because they probably don't know any different. That's what they're used to. And so I can't really blame anyone, honestly. You know? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And 
it could be encouragement for more people, regardless of where they are, to get out of their normal day to day and to explore different situations, to see what else is out there in their communities, in the country, in the world. Because I, I think to your point, that can help us to better appreciate what we have or the situation that we're in. Absolutely. I agree with you 100 percent. You come from a big family. You're one of 32 kids. What's the reaction been like from back home this past week? It's been incredible. It's been amazing. I mean, uh, five of my siblings um, and I actually have a WhatsApp group. And, uh, you know, like when I I was done with my wrestling, one of my brothers is going to school here and uh, he had posted, you know, about the results and some of the videos and stuff. And so my siblings who um, like who are part of the group are very, very supportive and they're super excited, you know, because like they just know how hard I have worked and how long it's taken me to get here. And also they've been the recipient of my excuses of, hey, I'm not coming home this year. I'm sorry. I have this big race that I'm training for and I know that I have to sacrifice coming home so that I can perform my best. And, you know, because I only have one opportunity, one chance to make this right. And so for them to see that this sacrifice that I made has finally, you know, but like now they see the fruits of that, you know, they were definitely very excited for me. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode. They're offering a phenomenal deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Use the promo code SHAKEOUT, all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and you'll save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Some restrictions do apply, but that should cover you for most products on their website. I've been running in the Fresh Foam 1080 V10 for the past several weeks, and it's quickly become one of the workhorses in my shoe stable. It provides the right blend of cushioning and responsiveness to make my daily miles and long runs comfortable and enjoyable. I've also been alternating between a couple different New Balance tops of late that are worth checking out. On colder days, my go-to has been the NB Heat Quarter Zip. It's lightweight, but keeps me warm when it's under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. There's a handy little zip pocket on the chest that I like to throw my house key in, and it's one of my favorite design elements about the piece. On warmer days, when I get out later in the morning or mid-afternoon, the Impact Run short sleeve has been my shirt of choice. It's super light with sharp, solid colorways and subtle design elements. It also fits great, not too tight, not too loose, and will be a staple in my wardrobe for a long time to come. Remember, use the code SHAKEOUT. That's all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and you'll save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. My thanks to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Take me back to the race itself, even the months leading up to the race. When did you really start focusing on the Olympic trials and making it the focal point of the early part of 2020? You know, I think for a long time, um, I mean, our group, when like the history of the group is that uh, when the group was started back in 2014, I think their goal was they wanted to put someone in the Olympic team, right? And so everyone in our team was working towards uh, making the Olympic team. And um, when I came in two years ago, you know, I knew that that was the dream and that was the goal. But really, like, honestly, I don't think I, um, I don't think I, I, I believed in myself to make that team. I don't, I I was trying to convince myself that I wanted to make the Olympic team. 
and I hadn't really like ran good marathons, but then once I ran, I ran my good marathon last spring and then I ran well in New York, you know, I, I knew that I had a chance, but at the same time, I don't think I would say that I want to make the Olympic team, but I wasn't convinced. I wasn't convincing myself. And, um, I think that, a, a couple, well, the day that, uh, Kobe Bryant passed away, right. Um, something snapped in me. I realized how short life can be. And I never met him. I didn't even know him much. But then I guess, you know, like the things that people were writing about him, there was just something that, you know, made me snap out. And I I realized that I hadn't seen my family for over three years. Why had I not seen them? I hadn't seen them because I was making excuses that I was working very hard to, uh, to make the Olympic team. But I wasn't really like... Like, I don't think I had my my mind and heart in it. And so in that moment, I realized that what I was doing was I was just wasting time and making excuses and not really, um, I guess, taking advantage of um, of the opportunity that I had. And in that moment, I decided that I was going to fully commit to making the team. So that was seriously the day that I, I committed myself or recommitted myself to making the team and believing that I was going to make it. That wasn't that long out from the trials. It was only no. within a month or so. Yeah. And, and and like the thing is, I knew that physically I could do it. But I, the thing is, it doesn't really matter if you can do it physically. If you don't believe that you can do it, then it really doesn't happen. Because like if you're running a race and it, you feel the pain, the pressure, it's easy to let go, right? Like you, you can't dig deeper. And so for me, I feel like physically I could do anything. But mentally or in my heart, I just hadn't run with my mind and my heart. And so it was that day that I committed that I was going to run, you know, like in my mind, I was going to believe that I was going to do this because I physically I already had everything that I needed. You know, I had the training, I had my coach. And so it was just running with my mind. It was believing that I can do it and in my heart, giving everything that I had to make it. Were there specific exercises that you did to mentally rehearse some of these situations or to convince yourself that you had everything that you needed in order to make the team? As a matter of fact, I actually, uh, I went, um, I went to talk to a performance psychologist. I talked to Shannon, uh, from Flagstaff because I mean, well, so we started, uh, working with Shannon as a group. We had a focus session and it was when we started doing that that I really, um, you know, decided that I wanted to talk to her one-on-one. Like I wanted to make an appointment and, and talk to her and talk through the problems that I have and the things that I've been feeling, you know, like especially with like not being committed with making the team and stuff. And I think it was Shannon's help that really helped me um, dig in deep and also do some of, you know, like, I guess, figure out some of the fine solutions to some of the issues that I was dealing with. And so um, eventually we uh, kind of settled on um, uh, hypnosis. So we did a really good intense hypnosis like um, the week before the race. And oh gosh, like I th- at the end of that, um, at the end of that session, I could see myself winning it. I, I think I, I I got out of that session feeling that I already won the race and it was very hard for me to to like contain my excitement and and realize that I hadn't done it, that that was just in my mind. But I think after that session, I I could see everything. I mean, we visualize a lot. I could see myself making those moves. I could see, you know, I had different scenarios, but again, 
you know, something could happen when you're doing it in real time. And so, yeah, like we practice a lot of uh, visualization uh, and we did hypnosis. And that's not anything that you'd ever experienced before leading up to a race. Oh, no, no, I had not. Because I never like before this, I had never uh, I never seek help of like uh, that kind of help. You know, like I, I didn't even know that I needed to. But I think for the first time, like 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 I said, um, after uh, Kobe Bryant's death, I I, I I decided that I was going to do everything within my powers to be ready for this race. And that included, um, you know, like seeking for help, you know, for things that I can't that I can't figure out. Like, you know, I decided that it was strength to let someone else help you if you're going through uh, something that you can not figure it out. Let the experts help you. <sighs> Along these lines, I'd love to go back through the tweet thread that you posted earlier this week, just taking everyone through what you were feeling and experiencing in the 24 hours or so before the race. Because even with this renewed sense of confidence in yourself and belief that you could win the race, I'm reading through right now. It's like Friday morning. I'm exhausted. I can't (laughs) sleep in. I have no appetite. Um, You're feeling all these things in your body. Your quad is on fire. You're wondering if if you're injured. Um, You're having tough time sleeping that night. Then Saturday morning you wake up and you're feeling good as new, you said, um, but you're still, you know, you're nervous and you have a hard time like getting down your breakfast. And and I think this resonated with a lot of people because almost any marathoner who, regardless of whether they're pro or not, feels these sort of things, like these little moments of doubt, these little injury pangs before a race. And it made, I, I think it made, you know, you certainly more relatable to them, but helps other people realize like the elites deal with this stuff too. But take me through that period in like the 24 hours before the race and how you were dealing with all these little moments of of doubt and like these little pains you might have been feeling and the nerves and all of that yeah i i mean i i decided to write that thread because i was like i'm not a writer for one and um i i just wanted uh to give people like i i just didn't know how else to communicate what i was going through and you know i was like wait Actually, I stole this um, idea from Emma Bates. I hadn't, I haven't given her the credit yet. When she ran Chicago, um, she had something similar. It was a little different, but she had something similar on Instagram. And so I thought, if I can do this thread on Twitter, like people don't really like it. It doesn't bother people that it's very, very long. And I think from the reactions that I've gotten, you know, people enjoyed it. But yeah, like. I was going through really like it was a different race for me, or different experience from for me compared to my other races, because usually, like, you know, I could go to a race three days early and I don't really get nervous until the day before the race when, you know, like you have technical meeting and it really feels like you're in a race. But with this one, we get in on Wednesday and Thursday I wake up to go get breakfast and everybody's like decorating their bottles. It's just that. And I remember um, one of the guys was like, you should decorate your bottles today. And I'm like, why would I want to do that? (laughs) <laughs> like it's two days before the race but then it's like well because you know it might be chaotic and i and like seeing the, the the mood it felt like everybody was so serious and seriously that just got me nervous like it got me thinking oh gosh like i guess i am here to race i guess i'm not a like i'm not serious like everyone else and so that like that nervousness two days before the race took away you know the excitement that i usually have and it's kind of like it made me started like uh, like losing my appetite because usually that's what happened the rest of the morning. But it's just that 
the whole atmosphere, it felt so serious. Like I think people, a lot of people took it very, very serious. What? Yes, you just still take it serious. But I think for me, I don't always take things too seriously. And some of my best races that I've performed are races that I've been super excited, like being mingling with people and talking with people like, you know, the days uh, leading up to the race. And so this was a little different. For one, I mean, we didn't really have like opportunity to go talk to people. And so I spend a lot of time, um, you know, in my room and stuff, um, except the podcast that we had and uh, running with my teammates. But yeah, like, and then like I started developing these, um, like, so, okay, in the fall when I ran New York, oh God, I had never felt that good. Like there was nothing, like my body just felt so good. I didn't have anything that like, I didn't even have any aches and pains. And I thought that I was going to have this again, you know, for uh, for Atlanta, because again, the buildup was excellent. Like I didn't have any pain. I I wasn't injured or anything, but then like, Two days before the race, I start developing things and I'm not even running that much. And then it gets worse. And then it's like one thing after another. And it was not in my head. Seriously, this was real. <laughs> I mean, I probably was too dramatic about it. But when I woke up the morning of the race, it had just gotten worse. Like, I mean, in the past, I've had like my shin uh, get tight and then I will massage it the night before and it would be super painful. But then I'll wake up the next morning and I don't feel anything. This was different. Like my entire right leg, it was the hip, it was the quad, and then now it was the shin. And I just felt like I was breaking down on the most important day of my racing career so far. And that was very um, disheartening. And so I woke up that morning in a really bad mood. And um, I was like, I don't think I can do this. You know, I promised people that I was going to do everything within my powers to do well and that I was healthy. And now I didn't feel like I was that healthy anymore, you know. And so, yeah, my mood that morning was definitely not very good. But then once the race went off, though, I, um, I, I didn't completely forget it, actually. And, uh, and those things were there. But I think I was just very comfortable that it didn't become an issue. Did it help to have just the race itself to focus on and your competitors around you? Because when you're responding to moves and trying to make sure that you're still in contention, you really can't think too much about how your leg is feeling at that point. Yeah, it definitely did. Yeah. And this was a very interesting race in the sense that there were at least 10 or 12 or 15 women who could have met this team. And for a very long time, we had a big pack. And actually, I think I got to a point where I was like, I know we're not running a crazy fast race, but this is a very hilly course. It's a windy day. There's still a big pack. Like I And I, I like for a moment, I thought this is not going to go great because nobody's breaking, you know, like everybody's here. And uh, yeah, it was just in, like it was... Um, I just didn't know what to expect even during the race because like it's like when the move is met, who is going to survive and who is not going to survive. And so I think those are the things that kept me uh, present. And, um, you know, like I didn't focus on I didn't have a chance to focus on what was going on with me. How did you think the race was going to play out? Did Coach Ben and Kellen and Steph and yourself talk about that before the race given the number of women who could potentially contend for a spot and how tough the course was and the wind, did you guys have an idea how you thought it might play out or were you just going to respond to whatever happened that day? I'd love to get into some of the pre-race talk that you guys had leading into it. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think we thought, I mean, before the race, uh, like a couple of days before the race, we didn't really think that it was going to be that windy. I think it was supposed to be like 14 miles an hour and then it went to 15 and then it kept going up. And by race morning, it was like 20 miles an hour wind and sometimes it got gusty. But when Ben and I sat down, because, uh, you know, he spoke to us individually, when him and I sat down, we just talked about different scenarios. But we said that, you know, like, first of all, not do the work, just tuck in because, again, it's a very hard course. And we we both agreed that the course itself was going to whittle people down. I don't think that actually was the case. That was different because in my mind, I thought like by the third loop, you know, like there would probably be five people. And even when I was doing my visualization, I was thinking by the third loop, it's probably going to be five to seven people. And then as we, you know, like as we get to right around seven miles to go, there will be less people. And that's not what happened. Um, and so we talked about like if one person were to go out, let them go, you know, because you can't really like if they go out on a pace that you feel like it's too hard, let them go. Now, if two people go, you have to assess where you are and how you feel because all of a sudden now there's only one more spot left. And if three people go, then you have to go with them. Like you didn't have a choice, you know, and and really we thought that at some point, like sooner, like I, we thought that somebody was going to make a move sooner than what happened. Was your confidence rattled at all during the race when that many women were still together heading into the last loop? No, actually, I think what really gave me a lot of uh, confidence to begin with, like when I saw the weather, I um, I really was like, OK, that means that no one is going to go crazy because unless you really are risking uh, falling apart, no one will want to go uh, and run this like windy conditions in a really hard course by themselves. And so um, during the race, what really gave me a lot of confidence was that whenever we were going uphill, you know, like I would listen to my competitors to, to you know, like to feel how they were breathing, if they were breathing hard or not. And I, I think a lot of people, I could hear a lot of people were breathing hard. And for me, I was like, like whenever we went up, especially when Laura Tweet was leading, you know, like I think we kind of kept running almost the same pace, maybe slowed down a tiny bit. But like I was feeling really good. I never felt uh, like I was struggling. And so that really gave me a lot of confidence. And so I was not worried. Were you aware of where Steph and Kellen were at all during the race? And did you guys talk at all or were you each just doing your own thing? Oh, yeah, I was aware. I mean, we were all in the same pack and I think it was probably around 15 or 16 miles that I remember glancing um, and seeing Kellen. Kellen was leading. Uh, Kellen was on my right um, and she was up front and Stephanie was also on my right, but like kind of like right next to me. And I remember appreciating, you know, like, oh, the, the three of us were in this race and uh, this is like 16. We are over halfway in and we are still doing really well. And for a moment, it kind of felt like practice. And I thought maybe we could all make this team, you know. So, yeah, that was like, I, I, yeah, a few times. And actually, I think there was a time that I almost bumped into Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> when the moves started getting made after mile 20, what was your thought process like at the time? Were you content to just sit patient for a little bit while longer? Or did you know at that point that you had to respond and possibly go? I mean, like, I, I kind of knew, you know, like this was the third loop and this was when the... Uh, uh, the move was going to be made, you know? And so like every time we were going up that direction, we would like increase the pace, but not crazy. And so I think we gradually started increasing the pace and um, 
right around the time that um, Molly Seidel took the lead, we had been like running a little faster, but then like, and so like, I think we kind of just went just a little bit faster than we'd been running before. And then when I glanced back, because I was right behind her, just like I had been right behind Laura Tweet whenever we were going up this like the the long gradual hills, and I glanced back and I saw that we had separated, and that was the moment that I knew that this was the move. And so once that happened, I actually like came up front and ran side by side with her instead of being behind her. And I told her, I said, "Let's go, Molly," because. I knew that this was the time for us to make, um, to, like, to make our breakaway because, you know, like, it was Molly and I, and then Sally was uh, like a couple seconds behind, and then uh, the pack wasn't there anymore. It was strong away, but like, not, you know, we, not everybody was on, in a single file. And so when I ran, when I came to the side of Molly and we ran together, we, I think, we like increased the pace significantly. And uh, like <laughs> once we did that, now we like. The, the rest of the uh, field wasn't able to match that. You've run with Molly a bit because she spent time in Flagstaff. Was that comforting for you, even though she's not your teammate? I mean, actually, we haven't run a whole lot together. Uh, we did run together, uh, I think, uh, a couple of years ago when I was coming back from injury. We ran together. Uh, we did one run together. And then uh, this year... I ran into um, her and Rachel Snyder uh, one evening and then we ran together and I invited her to come do our long run with us, but uh, she had something else. And um, I raced her in Houston. And so we haven't really had a ton of uh, like practice together. We will, and then we'll just run into each other, you know, like I guess running opposite directions uh, on say Lake Mary or Winnie Mountain Road, but we didn't necessarily train together though. In the last 5K or so of the race, were you just running to maintain a top three spot or did you want to try and win it at that point? So when Molly and I got away, um, you know, like that was the best thing that we could do for each other. And I, and the reason why I told Molly let's go was because when you work, when two people work together and then you have one person chasing you, it's very difficult to catch those two people. And I have been in those situations before, before where I was the one chasing and of course, I fell apart and the two people who are like up front just met ground on me. Um, and so when I told her, let's go, I knew that if we were to work together, we would definitely, uh, we, there was a chance that both of us were going to make the team. And um, in the last 5K, you know, I keep just thinking that we should work together because a marathon can be some, a marathon can be really hard and she'd never done a marathon before. So I kept uh, having communications with her we weren't having conversations or anything but I kept you know encouraging her you know like whenever I felt like she was maybe she might have been struggling I'm not sure if she was actually but like whenever I felt like she wasn't on my shoulder I would be like come on Molly and uh, at some point she told me that she said you know she said she was okay um but I think that I wanted to wait for as long as possible because in my visualization actually I was thinking that it was those last two miles like once we went down like I was thinking that maybe that downhill going into the Olympic rings would be where I would make my move. And so going down that bridge, uh, I thought maybe I could, because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good when it comes to running downhill. And so I thought maybe running that downhill, I would slightly increase my pace, but not put myself in a hole. And then once it was time to come back up, which is probably about less than two miles to go, I could really put the hammer down. And, um, 
with Molly, that didn't happen. I mean, we just kept running together. And then I think it was about a mile and a half to go is when I decided that, okay, it was like I wanted to give myself a chance to win the race. Now, before that, I think I was like, I could be fine if I was second place. But about a mile and a half to go, I thought even if I was going to be second place, at least I should give myself a chance. So, yeah, it was probably about mile 24 and a half. One more quick break to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Atlanta Track Club and the AJC Peachtree Road Race. Hey, I know it's only March, but you need to mark your calendars right now because both member and lottery registration for the AJC Peachtree Road Race on July 4th is right around the corner and opens up on March 15th. The Peachtree Road Race is one of America's iconic road races. Move forward with Atlanta and 60,000 other raucous runners as Atlanta Track Club nods to the future of the race. Peachtree is the largest road race in the country and the biggest 10K in the world, and it has something for everyone. It's the only way to celebrate July 4th in America with 200,000 spectators, costumes, music, and the coveted finisher shirt. Again, the race is on July 4th, and this year it falls on a Saturday. Lottery registration opens to the public from March 15th to the 31st, and more information is available at ajc.com slash peachtree. That's ajc.com slash peachtree. The cost is completely reasonable, 38 bucks for Atlanta Track Club members and $42 for non-members who enter through the lottery. My thanks to the Atlanta Track Club and AJC Peachtree Road Race for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When you crested that last little hill with 200 meters to go and it was the final downhill into the park, you had about eight seconds on her at that point. You could see the finish line. The crowd was going crazy. You had a flag in your hand. What was that feeling like for you, knowing that you were going to win the race? It was powerful. It was incredible. It was amazing. Um, Again, it's really hard for me to, um, like, you go, like, when you visualize something and you visualize winning a race, there's all these thoughts and and plans that you have. But when you're in that moment, that's not what happens. And so for me, like, I was just so excited, you know, that the crowds were cheering and that I had my flag on and I was like, having fist pumps and, and stuff because I knew that I, I probably, like, I had the chance to win. And so it was exciting, but really, like, I don't think that it is what I, I had planned, you know? Like, nothing went according to plan. In in my head, when I was thinking about that, I was like, I am going to take it all in. But when I was doing it, really, I think I was just going with the flow. Honestly, like, I was just going with the flow of the crowd cheering and, you know, just seeing people just going crazy. Well, it's all happening so fast. It's hard to slow things down and probably really take it all in in, in that moment, I imagine. And and also, like now, if I had been by myself for like two miles, then that would be different right. because that will actually give you time to soak in and, and plan your next move. But then like Molly was still within like a striding distance from me and also like she can kick. So even though I was that close to the finish line, there was still a chance that she could have, yeah, there was still a chance that she could like still have another gear and I would kick me. And that had happened in the past actually. And um, so I remember in 2018, I ran the U.S. half marathon championships and a mile to go, you know, I was like, I, I, I glanced back and Sarah Hall uh, was 
not that far from me, but I was like, I got this because it was a downhill finish and I started feeling good and I didn't really look back. I was lucky because I crossed the finish line fast, but I crossed the finish line and seriously, Sarah was right there and I was shocked. I was shocked at how fast she closed because I also ran that mile under five minutes and I thought I was running so fast. And to have seen that, I think that since then I have just been like, I could never relax until I crossed that finish line. Like, I don't have a kick. And so I never know the person that is behind me. It doesn't matter how far they are. They could still be gaining ground on me. So I never like, I never let um, my mind rest on that. Well, I think that's a great takeaway for anyone. You've got to race all the way through the tape. Let's fast forward a few minutes to after you've crossed the finish line. Molly comes across, Sally comes across in third. That's the Olympic team. You're waiting for your two teammates and training partners, Steph Bruce, who came across in sixth, and then Kellen Taylor in eighth. I mean, I know they were very excited for you as teammate and training partner to make the team because that was the goal, but probably a little bit disappointed that they weren't able to join you. What was that initial moment like when you guys met up for the first time after crossing the finish line? I think for me, like when I crossed the finish line, I kind of almost like blacked out or I did black out. Like things were just happening. All of a sudden I was just existing and, and, and just going with the flow. But then when I saw my teammates, it's just that I just went to give them a hug and I think once we were all like we were hugging each other and we like, you know, we were all wrapped, you know, inside this American, beautiful American flag. I think that was the moment that it hit me. And that was the moment that I got emotional and I broke down for the first time since crossing the finish line. And I just cried. And then, of course, we all cried. And um, that was a very special moment because it wasn't until that point that I really kind of um, it like it hit me what had just happened, that something bit had just happened, even though, I mean, it hit me. And then, of course, I, again, blacked out for the rest of the day, you know, just going with the flow. Uh, but yeah, like, I don't know. I don't think I was thinking in that moment. I think I was just, it was just the emotions. Like, I wasn't consciously, like, thinking about what was going on. What were some of the conversations with them, like, a few hours after the race or even in the days following it? I, I, I think some of the conversations, like, for example, with Stephanie, I didn't realize how close she was, you know, to uh, making the team in the sense that a couple miles before that, she was so far, like, time-wise, she made a lot of ground. And I remember thinking, like, Stephanie, I mean, I, I wish I could have pushed her, you know, like, I wish she had made, like, if Stephanie had, if Stephanie had, like, I don't know, like, if she had a half mile to go, I I am almost positive that she would have been in the team. And I know that Stephanie can dig deep. I know that she can dig deep late in the race. And that is the one person um, and other people like Sarah Holt that I do not want to be, I don't want them hunting me down uh, late in the race because I know that they can dig deep in and, and they can get a lot out of myself that I can. And so like looking at that, like looking at the results, and seeing how much ground she made, I think it made me just, I just wish we could go back, I guess, because these are my teammates, you know, and, and, and I'm rooting for them and I want them to make the team. And so, yeah, like I, I think once I saw um, how close um, she was to 
Megan, the team, I just, you know, I was heartbroken for her. Now, for Kellen, on the other hand, you know, the everything that she was dealing with and seeing how strong, you know, she was able to, like, maintain this pace with everything else that was going on with her shin, I think that was, like, incredible performance. And it just, I can't help think that if if Kellen hadn't had this problem, what, how different would have the results been? Like, is there a chance that the three of us could have met the team? Like, assuming that Kellen had been strong, right? And assuming that when I met the move, that Kellen and I would have gone together, maybe Stephanie would have been right there. How different would the results have been? I guess we will never know. But, you know, I can't help just imagining that there is a chance. Seriously, I think there is a chance that all of us could have been that team now. God, that would have been a piece of heaven. You know, that would have been like incredible. Well, I think it just highlights the importance of training partners and having people in your corner along the way because they were able to help you out in training. You obviously helped them out. As you had mentioned, Kellen had dealt with a lot of stuff in the buildup to this race personally. And you and Steph were there for her because you guys share so many miles together. So in a way, you're the one who makes a team and gets to go to Tokyo. But on another level, you're taking them with you because you wouldn't be here without them and vice versa. Absolutely. And uh, one of Kellen's, I don't remember if it was Instagram or was it a uh, tweet, she said, we made it. And, and and that just was incredible. And I listened to their, uh, I watched their interviews and I can't help being amazed by these women. Like they just finish a race and, you know, like obviously I'm sure they were disappointed, but they were very, very happy for me. That is something that I ask myself, like had I been put in that situation, would I have felt the same way? You know, like if I was in a situation where like, like, like Stephanie, for instance, right? So close, like just about 20 seconds from making the team. Would I have been that positive, you know, about my teammate who just met the team? I don't know. I mean, I'm an emotional person and like, I think it takes a lot of grace to be those women. I I am at an awe of them. Like, I, I, I don't know. I think they're just incredible people. A few more things here before we wrap up. What are things going to look like for you between now and when you start building up for the Olympic Games in August? I tell you, Mario, a lot of uh, making business. As a matter of fact, I'm actually crocheting right now as I talk to you. (laughs) Well, your Etsy store was sold out not long after the race. Exactly. And you want to hear something that I made a mistake? This is a a mistake that I wish I had never made. But so um, I had you know, my inventory, but I had them wrong. And I, I I kind of knew that, you know, if I were to make the team, that there was a chance that um, I was going to sell a lot of beanies. And so therefore, I was like, maybe I can just put um, that I have X amount of beanies, even though I don't have it, because I was like, how bad can it get? I mean, if I, in the worst scenario, I could probably get 20 beanies uh, orders and, and I don't have them, but I could make that in like three, four, five days. Well, guess what? <laughs> I finished the race, I win the race, and I have 200 plus orders. Tell you what, I only had like about 10 beanies because I had been selling most of those beanies that I had. Like when I went to Atlanta, for example, there was an event uh, for the black community in Atlanta, African-American community, and I took my beanies there and they bought most of my beanies. Now, these are beanies that um, on my en- online Etsy store, they were supposed to be available. But because I, I sold them to people that I 
So um, in person, the paid cash, it didn't really, uh, my online store doesn't show that. And now I ha- I am so behind. <laughs> I am so behind that it's scary. You're going to need to hire some help. Yes and no. Well, it would be nice to hire some help. But the reason why people buy my business is because I met them. They're from you. And so right. really, yes, I can't really hire someone to help me make the business. It wouldn't make me feel good. It wouldn't make me feel good saying that, hey, here are Ali T. Beanies and um, they were made for, from someone else now by someone else. Now, I could hire someone in the sense that they could help me put the logos on, that they could help me, um, you know, take the packaging and re- re- uh, shipping because that's something that I don't enjoy. So, yeah, I'm in the process of trying to find someone who can use a sewing machine and help me put the logos on, but I have to make the business myself. I have to crochet them because that is why people are buying them and I want to keep them that way. Unfortunately, Just... I can't sell more, a lot more beans that like I would. I kind of wish that um, it was easy to make them like, like you know, when you print t-shirts and you just have them mass produce because my goal was to have as many people as possible wear my beans. Unfortunately, because I can't I, I can produce them any faster than I am right now, I guess I'm not going to be able to fulfill that. <laughs> Just to fill my listeners in, because when we last spoke in 2018, the beanies weren't a thing yet. When did the idea for them come to be and what's the story behind their creation? So Ali T. Resilient Beanies uh, started uh, uh, last summer, July of 2019, because um, in June, uh, on June 22nd or June 23rd, I was diagnosed with a femoral stress fracture. And therefore, uh, I was told that I couldn't run for 68 weeks. Prior to that day, I had never not had anything. Like when I was in high school, um, I stopped running, but I was concentrating on school so that I had something to do. When I was in college, I was doing both running and school. And if I had, if I was injured, I had school to concentrate on. All of a sudden, as a professional athlete who doesn't have a job, I had nothing to do. And I realized that I just can not have anything. When I, I mean, when I have things to do and I'm running, I can complain a lot. I can complain a lot about how busy my life is, how I have ABCD to do and I wish I didn't have to do this. But for the first time when I didn't have running, I found out that I didn't have anything else to do. The first day I watched uh, Grace Anatomy, I went on a Grace Anatomy marathon. That was the longest day <laughs> of my life. I decided that I needed something else. And um I discovered crocheting. I mean, I knew how to crochet, but then I went to YouTube and I discovered how to crochet beanies and um, I just started crocheting and I really enjoyed it. It was very, very therapeutic. I could uh, crochet while watching TV or while talking to people and it made me so happy to see the final product and because it takes about an hour, an hour, I have to make one. I just, it was like I put all my energy that I would usually uh, put in running or into running to crocheting and seeing how many beanies I could make in a day. And I got so excited. And then eventually I was like, okay, now I have so many beanies. What do I do? Maybe I should try to sell them. So I posted on my uh, social media account. I said, what do you guys think? Uh, would you buy my beanies? And I think some people were like, yeah, you know, we could, but this is summertime, of course. And fall came around and I had a lot of beanies, actually. In fact, I was worried that I had so many beanies that I wouldn't be able to sell them. But then people really started buying them in November, December, and um, I haven't stopped 
crocheting since then. I have a feeling you're probably not going to stop for a while, <laughs> given the uh, success you know, of this I past weekend. <laughs> you might have to put a, a limit on your inventory. Uh, yeah, well, assuming that I can catch up soon, I'm, I feel so bad though because on my Etsy shop, you know, like usually whenever people ordered beanies, I never had like more than 10 a day, right? And so if somebody ordered a beanie, even if I didn't have it, I always, you know, was able to make it on time and ship it. And so like my processing time is like some of them three to four days. The other ones probably like two weeks, but I'm not going to be able to finish this in two weeks or three days. I mean, some I'm going to be able to finish and ship them, but some of them, it might take me like a month. And I feel bad because that's not what my, that's not what it said when they purchased the beanies. I really hope that, um, for your listeners who uh, listen, who will listen to this, please forgive me. I am working really, really hard every single day. I got up today at like six forty something, and I started crocheting. I think people listening to this will will certainly appreciate your situation and gladly wait as long as they need to to receive their beanie from you, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I would be very grateful for that. And for those of you who've been wanting me, um, you know, to make the beanies and a lot of people have been messaging me saying, how can we buy your beanies? Please bear with me. I am doing the best I can to crochet this as soon as possible. And once I'm done with the orders that have already been paid for, I will work even harder to uh, restock the store and reopen it back up so that I can sell more beanies to people who really want it. Because I would love to have so many people, you know, have their beanies on their heads. Last question before we wrap up here. This Olympic trials win last weekend has shown a pretty big light on you. And I think it's remarkable that more people get to hear your story who hadn't been familiar with it before. How will you continue to use this platform moving forward to inspire others? You know, um, my uh, Instagram followers went from 6,000 to almost 17,000 now. Yay. My uh, my Twitter went from, uh, I think, like 2,000 to like over 5,000 now. I am excited about that. And I will just continue to tell my story. And here's the thing that I will continue to tell people, you know, like the opportunities that I have, anybody can have those opportunities. And I want people to know how appreciative I am of these opportunities. You know, like I want people to know that I am relatable, that I am just like any other person, that I'm not a, a superhuman. I am just somebody who is talented and work very, very hard, you know, to achieve the goals that I have achieved so far and that I am grateful for these opportunities. And I want to continue to inspire more people, you know, to move, to exercise, to work out. And I want them to like believe in themselves regardless of what other people say. Like, and if there's any neg- negativity out there, you start to fire you up. You start negativity, you know, to inspire you to do the things and prove people wrong because that's how basically how I, I, I thrive. Like, you know, going into the trials, um, there were so many people saying that, you know, like I was a very, very long shot and that I had never done much in the marathon, you know, in the marathon and compared to other women to uh, make this team. And it fired me up. You know, I wanted to go there and show people that that was not the case, you know, that I, I had more in me and that I could do whatever I put my mind into doing as long as I worked very hard for it. And so I want to continue to use, you know, uh, this opportunity with social media to uh, inspire people and make them believe in themselves. 
I think that's a great place to wrap up this podcast. The big takeaway there. We all have more in ourselves than we think we do. Alephine, thank you so much for coming back on the Morning Shakeout podcast. It's a pleasure to have you as a two-time guest. Thank you very much, Mario. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to New Balance and the Atlanta Track Club for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. New Balance is offering a phenomenal deal to Morning Shakeout listeners right now. Use the promo code SHAKEOUT, that's all caps, all one word, when you check out at newbalance.com and save 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. Some restrictions do apply, but that should cover you for most products on their website. This year at July 4th is on a Saturday, which means you can't miss the AJC Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta, Georgia. It's the largest 10K in the world and the biggest road race in the country. Lottery registration opens on March 15th, so mark your calendars today. With 60,000 runners and walkers, 200,000 spectators, costumes, music, and the coveted finisher shirt, this is one bucket list race you can't miss. Lottery registration opens to the public on March 15th. It ends on March 31st, and you can find more information at ajc.com slash peachtree. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out, Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>